question is open. You can take whoever you want. I would probably take my former pig, Celine. From the heart of the Oregon wine country, you're listening to season four of the Wine Crush podcast. Stories uncorked for casual wine enthusiasts around the world, featuring winemakers from the Willamette Valley. Sponsored by Country Financial. From origin stories to terroir, here is your host, Heidi Moore. Welcome, friends, and thank you for tuning into another episode of Wine Crush Podcast. We are on episode six of season four, which is crazy and hard to believe that we are that far into the season. And today we have Holleran Vineyard Wines and Crew Work Wines. And thank you so much for being part of the show today. I'm so excited to have you both here because you are really, truly kind of the opposites of a little bit of what we've been looking at and, and listening to the last couple of weeks. So I, I love this. We love to dive behind the stories of the brands and when people come to the Lamette Valley, we really want them to know really what's out there, you know, who's out there and what wines they can be looking for outside of, you know, the norms. We're going to start with Mark from Holleran Wines. So grab a glass of wine, sit back and relax and enjoy the story. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. It's been it's been months since I've been out to the, the winery and the vineyard and spent time with your entire crew. I love the fact that your entire crew showed up to talk with me and share their stories and share their personalities and really, really show me what Holleran wine was all about. And when I pulled in, it was almost kind of like coming down through Tuscany with these beautiful vineyard lined driveway that really was kind of epic. It was, it was, it was a little bit magical, almost like you were kind of coming into a different realm and different world. So I know um, Bill, who's the owner, was not able to join us today. And I want to make sure that we really touch on his story because he's been in the wine industry for a very long time but you're also a big part of the story as well. So let's start with where Holleran Wine started. Sure. Well, thank you for having me and nice to see you again. Uh, glad you could visit us back. And I think it was February, which Maybe. seems like so long ago. But Bill and I moved to Oregon at about the same time in 1998, although I didn't know him then. Bill came out here from New York. He comes from the software world. He had a software company that he located to, to West Lynn. And he bought a vineyard in the Dundee Hills and kind of went from there. Part of his uh, property had an old horse barn and uh, they converted that to the wine, uh, winery. So he was kind of one of the first sort of garagiste sort of winery operations, just sort of making it happen with, with what he had. I uh, love that term. I had never heard that term until... I don't know, a couple episodes ago, and I think I called BS on the person because I thought they had just made up the term, but it is truly, oh, really? it's truly a real thing. Yep, it is. Yep. So uh, he hooked up with a winemaker who needed a place to make wine, and Bill had grapes that he needed made into wine. And so, you know, for years they had a handshake deal, and, and that's the way it worked. And then I came on to the scene in uh, 2005 as a harvest intern and never left. I've been there. This will be my 15th year starting next month. And that's pretty crazy because you did not start in the wine industry as well. You actually started with a little bit of a different background. That's right. I spent 13 years in the grocery uh, business. I moved out here in 98, like I said, and I needed a job. And there was a natural food store at the time hiring for a position that was a wine store. And I didn't know anything about wine. And so I just sort of fudged my way through the interview and uh, they hired me. And suddenly there I am selling wine to people and I don't know much about wine. But that gave me access to tastings and seminars. I met winemakers, you know, worked on developing my palate and learning. And uh, one of the winemakers said, hey, you should do a harvest. And that's how I ended up in 2003 at Cameron Winery. And after that, I said, 
I got to do this for a living. This is it for me. So it's so interesting how so many people don't come from wine. They come from some random location and place, whether it's the food industry, which makes sense because there's wine involved a lot of times with food and pairing or the grocery. I've heard that a couple times too. And really just random places that people just happen to stumble into the wine industry. And you are just, you're a perfect picture of what that is. So how's it been? So you've went from being an intern, mm-hmm. grocery person selling wine with no no history, no knowledge, no whatever, into an intern, and now you're the head winemaker at Holleran. So how does that progression work? And how you know where where are you at right now? And what do you think about what you did to yourself? Well, after my first harvest in 2003, I went back to school. I did the program at Chemeketa Community College outside of Salem. Uh, they have a, a degree in winemaking program. So I went through that for two years and it has been quite a journey. And, you know, the thing about, I really got burned out in the grocery industry. It's, there's not a lot of change that happens. You know, here comes the next holiday, you put up the next end cap, you stock the shelves day in and day out. And the thing I love about this job is that it's always changing. It's always a challenge. Every growing season is different. Something's always coming up. So do you naturally have that creative side? Because we've now determined that, I don't know, about 75% of the room is left-handed, which is totally off the ratio and the norm of what, whatever, which means that you're probably more of the creative type. So this is probably not something you ever dreamed of as a child, that you would be walking into this food and wine type industry. No, no, never. But I do, I play guitar. I've played in bands for many years, so I have that creative side to me. And one of the things that really attracted me to winemaking was that intersection of art and science. I went to college for biology, so I have a degree in biology. And, you know, during that first harvest, it all clicked for me. I'm like, here's the art, here's the science. Let's do this. It was, it was just perfect. And it's such a cool kind of mesh of of things because you do get that science, you get that creative side, you get you get to be outdoors, you get to be, you know, whatever. There's so much to being a winemaker that is just not just, again, squishing things and putting them in barrels and then pouring them in a glass. Sure. I mean, a lot of people think you're just tasting wines all day and there's some parts of the year where you are tasting through barrels and making blends. But, you know, it's also going to unclog that drain over in the corner that's overflowing. You know, <laughs> there's there's certainly some unglamorous aspects of it. And but, I was going to uh, ask you I that love be- it all. because there is that that sticky, dirty piece of being a winemaker. But then there's also kind of that rock star quality of being the winemaker. Where does the balance of that sit? I don't know. I don't really feel like a rock star <laughs> at two in the morning in the middle of harvest. But, yeah, I suppose I suppose there's a little bit of that. As far as Holler and Wine and as far as, you know, the history of it, you've progressed from the horse barn mm-hmm. and now you're in this beautiful location in Dundee. Is that the only location that you have right now? It is. Yeah, it is. And I suspect it will be the only location we have. But yeah, it's been quite a ride from, you know, just making a few hundred barrels to, you know, having a facility now where we do about 7,000 cases for Holler in and about another 4,000 cases for uh, clients. So you're doing a little bit of custom crush. And we have not really talked about custom crush and what that means. There's a lot of winemakers that do that. I mean, we've had a couple of them that do a lot of custom crush. But can you kind of tell us exactly what that means and how that looks like? Sure. There's It means 
two different things to different people. Some people uh, go in and actually physically do the work themselves. That's called an alternating proprietorship where they work in a facility. And then you have what we do, which is pure custom crush. You give us your fruit, give us a protocol, and we follow that protocol exactly to how, how you want. So that's that's the way we do things. So they truly own the label and then you're making the wine for them according to the style that they want and whatever else. That's correct. I know when I was, when I was there, I mean, I think I was up there for two or three hours. I was up there for a really long time and you had this beautiful lineup of wines that were, again, not just Chardonnay and Pinot that is what we usually see in the Valley. I mean, those are the biggies. Those are the big boys of the, of the wine industry. As far as the Willamette Valley, you had this beautiful lineup and we've started with a Sauve Blanc, which Mm -hmm. is one of my very favorite white wines. It's nice and aromatic. It smells amazing. It tastes delicious. But there's you're you're doing different things up there. So I want to talk about the Sauve Blanc a little bit because it is kind of that new and upcoming white wine, that grape that we're seeing a lot more of. And then I see other colors sitting on the table. So we're going to play a little bit of a ring around the rosy here in a few minutes, and we're going to talk about some of the other things. But let's talk Sauve Blanc, and then let's take a quick quick break and refill glasses. Sure. So, of course, we do Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, uh, Riesling as well, but uh, we planted Sauvignon Blanc back in the mid-2000s, and, you know, it's one of these up-and-coming white varietals, and we have a few acres of it, and I I absolutely love it. It's such an explosive wine out of the glass. There's all these, just this cornucopia of aromatics. It's just fantastic. We did our Sauvignon Blanc this year in two ways. We did a stainless steel, no oak, no mallow, real fresh fruit forward Sauvignon Blanc. And the one we brought today is uh, fermented uh, 100% in barrels with full mallow. So two very different styles. So let's talk about mallow because not everybody, again, knows what that means, but it is a completely different style and a completely different mouthfeel and texture when you're just doing stainless steel versus oak and and going through that whole malolactic fermentation. Sure. Malolactic fermentation refers to the conversion of malic acid to lactic acid via uh, a bacteria. And the effect that that has is it makes the wine more microbially stable and it also softens that harsher malic acid into a softer lactic acid. So you get a a more of a rounder, uh, softer mouthfeel. I was going to say that because there's almost a little bit of creaminess that comes with wine that's gone through mallow. And that's maybe just my palate because everybody's palate's different. But I, I truly like a white wine that's gone through mallow. It just has that little bit of extra oomph to it that is separates it from some of the others. Sure. And Sauvignon Blanc can be, it has a very high acid, lower pH. And so you may want a situation where you want to soften that. And uh, we also uh, do a little batonage or barrel stirring of the of the lees in the bottom of the barrel. So that also helps create this sort of rich, sort of creamy mouthfeel to the wine. That was actually a very nice way of, of kind of describing and, and talking through the whole Sauve Blanc. I do see that there is a pink wine right there. So I want to switch up the colors in my glass because I know that I definitely want some of that. And we're going to come back and talk about it in just a moment. Now that I have pink wine in my glass and everybody is happy, it is time to talk a little bit more about Holleran because they have some beautiful wines up there. You had just said something during the break, um, actually talking to our next lovely guest about where this rosé comes from. It's it's not a young vine. It's actually a 25-year-old vine or vineyard that you are utilizing for this rosé, which I feel is a little bit unique. 
That's right. This comes from the Anna Vineyard in the Dundee Hills. Most of that vineyard was planted in the early 70s, even earlier than these vines. But these vines are a little younger, but they come from a west-facing slope right there in the Dundee Hills. Triple Seven is the clone. And uh, this is a whole cluster pressed and fermented in stainless steel. Pretty straightforward. It's. I love the fact that it's kind of this rosy gold. It's not like pink, pink. It has this really pretty hue to it that... You can tell that you didn't soak on. I'm assuming there wasn't a whole lot of soak on it to where you're pulling a whole lot of color from it, but it has this really pretty hue and this really nice balanced acidic flavor profile to it. So nice, nice work. Kudos on that for sure. Well, thank you. Yeah. After being up there, I mean, I mentioned it kind of at the beginning, but when I drove in in January slash February, whenever it was when we were up there, there was absolutely no leaves on the on the vines. It was very bare. It was definitely winter, but. I can only imagine what it's going to look like during the spring, summer. And today is bud break officially? Officially today, yes. How does that work? I mean, the fact that we have you on the show today when bud break actually happened. That's because there's four lefties sitting around the table. Oh, well, there we go. The (laughs) the moon and the stars have aligned and so have the left-handers and we've got bud break. See, you know, Mm. there we go. If you've not been up to Holleran, you're in the Dundee Hills. The actual winery and tasting room are up in the Dundee Hills, but... You know, usually you get, you know, a lovely driveway and there's trees and flowers and whatever, but it is a long driveway of nothing but vines. And to me, it feels like a very Tuscan way of coming into a vineyard and a winery. And you have quite a few acres up there, if I remember right, both in the actual Holleran Vineyard itself, plus the Anna Vineyard, Mm -hmm. which is up the hill a little bit. Right. Well, the the winery and the tasting room are located at the back of Anna Vineyard, and that's about 20, 22 acres. And then uh, right across the road on Warden Hill Road is uh, La Pavion Vineyard, and that's nine acres, own-rooted, planted in 72. So it's one of the older vineyards of its type in the state. But I, I like the way you described the, the, the Tuscan-like road because it, it's a county access road, which but it's is pretty. Not, not as nice sounding. It, <laughs> yeah. it, no, it's not near as sexy by any means. The county access road is not near as sexy as Tuscany right. type-ish driveway to the winery. Yes. And there's like a gazebo and some other tasting locations along the way. I mean, I just, as I was coming in, I was kind of in awe Mm. because there was people kind of tasting in different little areas, you know, along the driveway. And then you come to the, you know, the piece of resistance, you know, at the end where, you know, everything happens. Yeah, there's a little gazebo halfway down that county access road, and we call it the Tiki Hut. When Bill bought that property in late 2013, uh, the previous owner of it had a sign on it. It was called Una's Cosmic Tiki Hut, and he used to have these wild parties there, and it was all decked out and decorated and painted all these funky colors. So we we still call it the Tiki Hut, but you can reserve that and do tastings outside at the Tiki Hut. Is there still cool colors and lights and all kinds of, like, discotheque stuff going on in the Tiki Hut or is it pretty? I think the disco ball's gone now. That's really disappointing. I think you need to bring the disco ball back. (laughs) That's going to be a whole nother realm of people coming up to taste wine if there's a disco ball. I've been wanting to put a disco ball in the barrel room. I think that would be fun. Well, there we go. We can totally come up with a new concept for the barrel room right here and now. You have all these lefties in the room that are all creative and we could totally poor Bill. (laughs) (laughs) Poor Bill. (laughs) Poor Bill. I know that there's other, you have other things going on there as well. And my glass is starting to get a little bit low. And I know you have Willamette Valley planted Tempranillo. 
on the property. And there's also a red bottle that has not been opened yet that I think we probably need to pop open and taste. It's beautiful. And you don't see a lot of Willamette Valley Tempranillo. So I want to definitely highlight that because you see it from the warmer areas. You see it from, you know, Washington. You see it from, you know, Idaho, Southern Oregon, whatever. But let's break that bottle open and really talk about the Tempranillo and why it's different and what your site is doing to that wine. The Tempranillo, by the way, is beautiful. The color is beautiful. And I just, it's, it, the, I don't know, the taste is just so pretty. So thank you for bringing this and sharing this with us. I want to talk about not only the Tempranillo piece of the vineyard, but also your, your farming as a whole, because it is something that you take a lot of pride in and something that Bill takes a lot of pride in. So let's talk about the Tempranillo really quickly first, and let's talk about kind of the vineyard itself, and then we'll make sure that people know where to find you. Sure. Tempranillo is more of an unusual variety for the Willamette Valley. I think people typically associate it with Southern Oregon or parts of Washington. But this is grown in the Eoli Amity Hills AVA. It is Willamette Valley Tempranillo. We planted this in the early 2000s. 2002, I think. 2005 was our first vintage. And it's been a learning process because it's it behaves very differently than Pinot Noir. It's certainly not Pinot Noir. And so, yeah, we've, we've, we've had a lot of practice with it. If you figure 2005 being your first vintage, I mean, you've had 16 years to practice. And so whatever you've done, you've done well. So because this is really, it's really a nice wine. It's not super heavy. It's not super chewy like a lot of those big reds can be. It has, I wouldn't say a light body, but definitely a little bit lighter of a body. And it's really a nice drinking wine. Thank you. Yeah, I think a lot of people think Tempranillo is a big sort of heavy red, but it's it's not. It, it can be quite quite elegant. And I think part of that is where it's grown. You know, we do have the cooler nights there in the Eolamity Hills. It's right right in the teeth of the wind there from the Van Duzer Corridor. So, you know, it helps keep that acidity in the wine and, ke- and keep it lighter in general. Well kudos because it's I think it's lovely so thank you for bringing it and sharing it with us sure thank you we kind of skipped over the vineyard a little bit because you have several locations or at least a couple locations and you are you're very progressive with what you're doing as far as the vineyard and the the farming is concerned as well as the winery let's talk a little bit about that and why it's different and what you're doing that's different and we'll go from there well Bill is is really passionate about farming and about you know the soils and and respect for for the for the land and and the vineyards and so we do farm organically uh, and biodynamically all we have three sites one in the Yolamity and two in Dundee and all three sites are farmed organically and biodynamically as well let's talk about biodynamics because it's People hear organics, they know exactly what it is, and we don't have to get into the whole, like, deep in the weeds by any means, but okay. give, us a, give us a very high-level definition of what biodynamics is. So biodynamics, boy, this is a tough one because you're right. I mean, what, what is it? You know, why does it work? When we, when we took over the La Pavillon Vineyard in 1998, you know, it was struggling and uh, switching over to uh, biodynamic vin- uh, farming. The vineyard has just really sprung back and uh, it is some of the, it is one of the last vineyards to lose its leaves and keep its, it keeps its color longer than most other vineyards around it. So what it is and why it works, I don't, quite know, but, you know, it's a system of farming developed by, I think, Rudolf Steiner is his name. Sure. The guy I'm going to go ahead and let you. <laughs> so the guy who does the Waldorf school, I think. 
Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to believe you and we'll just say it's right. A system of farming in line with like the position of the, the planets and the stars. And, and there's, uh, it's a, I kind of think of it as like homeopathics for farming. You know, you're using very diluted things like chamomile or nettle and spraying them onto your vineyard, you know. And you're also recycling the the prunings and the actual the off offshoots of what that vineyard is, whether you know, kind of recycling it back into it. So almost like recomposting the vineyard back into itself, if I understood correctly. Sure, that's right. Yeah, it's it's kind of a it's a different way of thinking and it's a different way of growing a vineyard, which has become a little bit more popular. It's extremely tedious on so many different levels, but it's really a cool way of farming, and mm. I love seeing and listening to all the different things that people are doing. And when it works for you, it works. And that's all that matters. And it produces amazing wine. Yeah, I, I, we think it does, you know, but you're right. It's a lot of work. It's an awful lot of hand labor and canopy management, and you have to be pretty meticulous. And you had mentioned that your staff, both in the vineyard and in the winery, stay on all year long. Yep. I like to say that we're we're 100% vertically integrated. We have from pruning all the way to packaging. Our vineyard crew, for the most part, works for us year round, and we have our own bottling line. We do everything uh, in-house ourselves. Our vineyard manager has been with us since 2013. And like I said earlier, this will be my 15th year. So So you have a pretty experienced crew that's been around for a while. Well, you know, winemaking and uh, growing wine is it's a long game. So if you can keep people around, I think it's the wine's better for it. I totally agree. It's kind of that it's it's that integration of all those personalities, knowledges and and experiences that come together to make, I think, something bigger and better rather than kind of starting the wheel over from the beginning. Right. Yeah. So before I let you go, because we've started doing this with every guest, we're asking you an off the cuff question that is going to make you think and be creative. So if you were on a desert island, maybe a deserted desert island, what wine and what food would you take with you? Riesling tacos. Okay. And why? Well, re- re- Riesling is, come on, Riesling's the queen of grapes, right? I mean, it can be sweet, it can be dry, it can be all these things. It's one of the best reflectors of terroir there is, I think, in a grape. So absolutely Riesling. You can drink it young, you can age it. Riesling. No doubt. Such a great answer because that's truly probably my favorite white. Don't tell anybody that doesn't grow Riesling, though. <laughs> and then why tacos? Ah, kind of a similar Be- reason, right? Because it's right? tacos, right? Because it's tacos. I mean, there's so many different kinds of tacos. You can have fish tacos with your Riesling. You can have tacos al pastor. You can have tacos are so versatile. So you and I were meant to be best friends. So just so you know, let's put that in your calendar that, you know, we're going to be best (laughs) friends starting today. And then we're going to go have Riesling and tacos when it comes time. Deal. Perfect. Great answer. Well, I want everybody to be able to find you because you do have this, this beautiful site, this beautiful driveway, as I have said, and and we've said it was a county access road, but it's not. (laughs) Don't think of it as a county access road. It is Tuscany in the valley, especially when the leaves are on peace and and on plants itself and they're blooming and beautiful and green. So if you have not been up to Holler and Wine, you are off Warden Hill Road in Dundee. At least the main location is. And where do we find you on social media and where do people come to buy wine? It'll be Holler and Vineyard Wines on Facebook and Instagram and also online, of course. We have an online store, website and all that kind of stuff. 
And you do have an amazing staff because I see the one that runs the the marketing and your tasting room behind you smiling and giving the thumbs up. So they have such a great staff. So if you have not been up there, please go seek out Holler and Vineyard Wines in Dundee, whether it's online, in person is so much better because then you get experience the driveway too. And thank you so much for joining us. It's been such a pleasure and I'm sorry it took so long to get you on the show. Well, thank you. It was my pleasure. And thank you for having us. Well, I will be up soon because I know there's other things coming in the lineup that I'm pretty sure I need to be trying and enjoying as well. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Thank you again to Holler and Wine for joining us and sharing all their amazing and marvelous wines. We are going to take a quick break and we're going to come back with Casey with Crewworks Wine. Attention all foodies, farmers, and grill enthusiasts around the nation. Fellowship of the Grill is looking for you to be a contestant on their six-week tournament-style cook-off to summer, launching May 3rd of 2021. And to be extra safe, this cook-off is going to be done all digital in the comfort of your own home. Not only is the grand prize winner getting a grill by the burn shop, but knives, kitchen and grill accessories will be gifted to the cook-off itself and in giveaways to the voters on Instagram. How cool is that? Applications close in just a couple of weeks, so light a fire under that booty if you're interested and head to at Fellowship of the Grill on Instagram to follow and learn more. Oh, and one more thing. If you own a farm, restaurant, or craft beverage, our presenting sponsor, Heidi at Country Financial, wants to support you. Go to insurewhatyoulove.com to send a message. Now go fill up that glass and enjoy the show. Cheers, y'all. Here we go, because I have this feisty little thing across the table from me that is Crewworks Wine, and I'm just so excited to dive straight into so many different things with Casey and talk about who Crewworks Wine is, where the hell Elkton, Oregon is, because even though we've talked about it a year or two ago, where the hell is Elkton, right? So Casey, thank you so much for driving the three plus hours to get up here and bringing this beautiful array of wine with you and your feisty little personality and everything else that you have brought to the table today, because this is going to be fun. So let's, let's say first off that poor Nathan... Your other half was not able to make it, so you are representing the whole crew today, and it's just it's going to be a good time. So let's talk about Crewworks Wine. Where, where, how, when, and how the hell did this go on? Yeah, so thank you so much for having me, first of all. Uh, this is exciting for us. And yes, Nathan is driving a tractor, kind of in zombie mode right now, fighting frost and trying to get our undervine cultivation done before it gets too dry. Elkton, Oregon is a tiny little town on uh, the main fork of the Umpqua River. About 200 people call the town home. And it is also an AVA. We got our AVA designation in 2013, and we got it based on the climate. It is a very unique maritime-influenced climate. We're about 30 miles from the coast as the crow flies, and we're planted to about... 125, 130 acres um, of grapes. And uh, Nathan has planted about half that since he got to Elkton in 20, oh no, gosh, 2009 was when he got there. So when I came out there, it's been the second, I've actually driven through Elkton quite a few times on my way to Coos Bay and Florence and wherever else I've gone down there. And you're in between Eugene and Roseburg 
ish area. I mean, that's kind of the general part of the map that you're in. But when we talk about your history and where you came from, you and I had an instant connection with the zoology piece of it because that was your, your came, you come from LA, correct? Down, down South, you had a zoology degree, if I remember right, which is something that I wanted to do straight out of high school, except marine zoology, but I get seasick. So if you get seasick, don't go into marine zoology. You can do other things with your life. But Nathan grew up in the Napa Valley. So he has a natural connection and instinction for what you're doing in Elkton. He does. Yeah. And it's, you've mentioned before, you know, a lot of people get into wine, not uh, starting in wine. And same with me, you know, I have a degree in wildlife biology, grew up in a big city, worked in the wine business, but Nathan is actually a fourth generation grape grower. His family uh, had been growing grapes in uh, Rutherford, California since 1946. And his grandfather, you know, one of the early uh, winery founders back in Rutherford. And back then, you know, the Napa Valley was a really community driven farming town. It was, you know, everybody knew their neighbor, everybody was helping everyone out. And and I'm sure that still goes on. But when he got to the point in his career where he was ready to branch out, he felt like, you know, everything that was going to happen in the Napa Valley for him had already happened. He had made wine and some nice fancy wineries and some big cab houses, you know, knew that he was probably never going to be able to you know, really, really break ground on anything unique and different in the Napa Valley. I mean, it's, it's been done. And so he went on this journey to try to find the next wine growing region that he wanted to settle down in and went all the way to the Finger Lakes, went up to the Willamette and ended up hitchhiking into Elkton, getting dropped off and walked into Terry Brandborg's winery and asked him for a job. And the rest is kind of history and then convinced all of us to move there, his entire family. It's a little serendipitous in the fact that, you know, he's kind of found this cool little valley. And if you've not been to Elkton, it is this really cool little valley. And I love the fact that I met you at the local grocery store and to where we met and, you know, I don't know, exchanged hellos. And then I followed you up the road to where Nathan was working. And as a true vineyard manager, wine grower, you know, he had his, you know, his prune pruners on his hip, on his belt, and he had a knife in his pocket. And I mean, hat on, you know, he was the full picture of what a farmer is. And it was just so fun. And you could see the passion. You had the vineyard dog. You had, Mm. everything was so right there and so picturesque Mm. and was very, I don't want to say stereotypical, but he could have been a poster child for a vineyard wine grower. It was really actually just a really a fun morning that I spent with you guys. Yeah, I and that is, you know, that is our day to day. I mean, there is obviously a lot that uh, goes into producing wines that are notable and intentional and fun and interesting to drink. But all of this comes because somebody is crawling around on their hands and knees in the vineyard uh, day after day or driving tractors or fixing fixing broken machinery and, you know, day in and day out taking care of that land. And Nathan truly does all of those things. I help him. I like to say that he grows the grapes and makes the wine and I do everything else. But, you know, I've also learned a lot working from him. And, you know, for me, having come from the direct to consumer world in the wine business, I left pretty jaded and really didn't have an interest in getting back into the wine business. I really felt like you know, if you're putting on a show, if you're if you're trying to, you know, contrive a story that will compel people to want to buy your product, that really only gets you so far. But if you're willing to or have the vision to 
to do work that will translate into something that will be memorable for yourself and for people who are drinking your wine, then, you know, everything comes from so far within that it's easy to keep going. It's easy to, you know, climb to the top of that mountain and then sink right back down. It's easy to absorb the failures and relish in the successes because everything is coming from a place that is so um, deep seated for us. And Nathan, you know, really showed me that when I moved to Elkton that, you know, we, we were already getting married. We were already knew that we were going to have our life together separate from the wine business. But when I saw what he was working towards, it really sort of lit a fire underneath me to say, okay, well, I think we can actually create something that is real. And, and comes from a place of love and intention for not only the land, but for, you know, our craft. So that's kind of where it sits now. That, that fire and that passion that you were talking about was very, very apparent, both between the two of you, but also, you know, for what you were doing. Because we started on, and you're going to have to correct me if I'm wrong, but we started on the east side of Elkton which is where the vineyard was that he was working on. And then we drove less than three miles across the river, up the road, through the valley, and onto his dad's place, which was a completely different climate. It was a completely different feel. It was, it was just truly in such a small area of space, you had two completely different worlds. But then, but then we drove back across the river into town and back up a the north-faced slope, correct, on the property that you guys are looking towards the future. So in this itty-bitty, tiny little valley of Elkton, you have three that I experienced different distinct worlds that you guys are working within. Yeah, and and there's more. We, we didn't take you out to Elk Creek Farm or 100th Valley Vineyard, which is actually where all of our Pinot Noir comes from, 100th Valley Vineyard. We didn't take you there because there were a lot of barking dogs that day, and we just didn't really have the patience for it. And he was working out at this other site, so we kept it simple. But I do, you know, I see the the this sort of, I don't know, for lack of a better word, like the specialness of the fact that, you know, we tasted our wines with you for the first time in the middle of a dirt field on the tracks of a broken D2 uh, bulldozer that has been living under a tarp in that field for five years. (laughs) I hadn't Uh, even gotten it there because I was going to go completely deep on the imaging side (laughs) and the fact that we drove up this deserted dirt road, which is totally up my alley, being a farmer's kid and pickup and everything else. I mean, we drove up the dirt road across a couple different cattle um, crossings through these cows that thought we had lost our ever-loving freaking minds. We're watching your dog like they were the the next pack of coyotes that were coming through and going to chase them. And then we walked through the cows up the road, down the ditch that um, somebody had dug with a excavator that was not supposed to be there, that was a mud hole, and then straight to the D2 that was under the blue tarp to drink wine off with the cheese, crackers, and everything else that we were doing. <laughs> was colorful and obviously memorable to say the least. Yeah, and and that is, you know, I I there is definitely something to be said for coming into the wine business with with money and resources because you are able to sort of hit the ground running and do all the things that you know as a wine professional uh, you should do in terms of creating a hospitality experience, in terms of, you know, giving yourself the 
ability to showcase your wines in the best possible environment. And I spent about a year sort of stressing about that. When we first, we, we founded the business in 2016 and started selling wine around the end of 2018. So we're, we're just getting started here with the commerce side of our business. But I spent about a year stressing out about what we were going to do. And then I realized, well, we're just going to give people the experience that we have to offer. And sometimes that's a picnic bench, you know, at the bottom of the vineyard on a nice day. And sometimes it's a dirt field that we'll be planting in the next year on the tracks of a broken D2 that really needs to get out of there. It's been there for a while. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that's okay. I, being married to an excavator, I so appreciated the work that was put into that location because there was a whole lot of tree stumps that were pulled out of that, that hillside. And, you know, I, I know way too much about pipe and I know way too much about equipment that a girl should just maybe, I don't know, maybe it makes me well-rounded. I don't know. But, you know, I could so appreciate everything that I saw out there in the big pile of stumps and the big one that took forever for him to dig out and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So anyhow, it was just such a fun experience. And then, of course, you throw the cows in there and I'm just right at home. So I do want to talk about your wine because it is, well, one, we started off with this pet nat type bubbly smell of orchards. I don't know how you explain this, but it was really delicious. Yeah. So we we started making a, a pet nat a couple years ago, just, you know, people were making them. We don't really have any strong ideals as as growers or winemakers. I mean, Nathan's not really afraid to say, oh, well, I've had some friends that have made this type of wine. I'm going to jump on that bandwagon or, oh, I think everyone's making this and that's ridiculous. So they can kick rocks. You know, he's, he's really doesn't have uh, one way or the other, but we did find ourselves with some white grapes that were not quite at still wine ripeness. And so we decided to experiment and start, you know, producing some light bubbles. And I, I personally have a proclivity uh, to sparkling wine and Nathan has often joked that like our bubbles bill gets sort of large. So he's started making me sparkling wine so that I'll stop buying sparkling wine from everywhere that I can find it. That's uh, actually a really good husband, by the way, on both the budget side and just because, you know, that's just a good husband to, you know. He he understands happy, happy wife, happy life for sure. And but we are business partners and we do have, you know, we, we have our share of disagreements for sure. But the pet nat was, you know, another like necessity is the mother of invention. Like we wanted a nice, bright, fresh, clean, sparkling wine to enjoy. We have all white wine vineyard, white grape vineyard in Elkton. It's only three and a half acres. It's on his dad's property. I think he took you there. He did. Yeah. We, uh, we actually yeah, played with the dogs there oh. and yeah, both dogs. And it was actually, you had to watch where you were going or you're going to get mowed over. Yes. Uh, especially the big German shepherd, yes. but neither, not both of them are, are quite terrible uh, at running people over. But so that vineyard, it's the most westerly vineyard in the AVA. It's also the first 100% organically farmed vineyard in the AVA, which is pretty cool. And it's also planted to the, all the varietals there are the AVA's first. So first Chardonnay, first Chenin Blanc, first Milan, and first Pinot Blanc planted that in 2017. So it felt like, you know, just kind of like a logical extension of the of the endeavor to start experimenting with those grapes. And, uh, you know, pet nats are easy. They're fun. You bottle it early and you drink it young. And it's just a fresh, clean, fruity wine to enjoy. So 
that's why we make it. Well, I love the fact that you actually mentioned all those varietals because other than Chardonnay, I mean, you don't see a lot of the Milan, you don't see a lot of the Chenin Blanc, even the Pinot Blanc mm-hmm. is, is not necessarily a super common thing. I do want to move on to the white Pinot because even though that is not part of that that lineup over there, it is something that we have had in our glass because we've we've been having a good time since you've been here. And you described it quite colorfully and a little bit feistily. So I want you to tell us all about that because when Nathan first brought that up, I kind of rolled my eyes a little bit because I've not always had great results with that. This was so good, both with the Chenin Blanc and with this white pinot. Yeah, which which I will say, you know, white pinot is just pinot. It's just pinot noir, but we, you know, press it off early in the morning. And the real secret to this wine is the fact that we we strive for really nice acid balance. So malic acid, lactic acid, and tartaric acid all all play different roles in a finished wine. And this wine, you know, it really fluctuates between where it dances on your palate. And I think that's why it's so uh, pleasing um, and easy to enjoy. In talking with a lot of other winemakers, especially in 2020, a lot of people were looking to make white pinots. Um, Nathan's phone was kind of ringing off the hook. Like, you know, how do you make that white pinot? <laughs> and he would tell them. But the the real difference is the farming. But we grow these the grapes that go into the white pinot completely differently. We grow them like they're white grapes uh, with our deleafing protocol and our picking <laughs> protocol. And this wine was born out of a need for a white daily drinker. And also the fact that in Elkton, we don't always get warm enough every single year to ripen all of our Pinot Noir to, you know, red, red wine a stature. So when Nathan was working with Terry Brandborg in Elkton in 2010, they had a really mild growing season and they sort of looked at each other and said, oh, well, Maybe we should make a Blanc de Noir without the bubbles. And so Terry made that happen and Nathan really liked the result. So when we started our wine company, he said, hey, I'm going to make a white Pinot Noir. And here we are uh, seven vintages later. It's well, my I, favorite. <laughs> it's really good. I want to say one, it's not white. It has kind of that rosy gold color mm-hmm. too. And I believe you called it a feisty little shit when you... I'm going to correct you. It was a feisty son of a bitch. Okay, I was close. And I don't but, know why I gave it a masculine pronoun because I do think it's actually kind of a lady wine but but it, it is a feisty little SOB right now because it is uh, young and fresh from the fight so this wine was bottled in February and and is just about released so I will say just now that I'm on kind of glass too <laughs> that if you have not tried Crew Works wine with this this white Pinot. You really need to check it out because it is feisty. It is a great porch pounder, something that you can drink during the summer. And I think the bottle is almost empty because we have shared it twice now around the table. So Nathan, huge props to this one because this is great. So there's other colors of wine sitting on the table. So I want to take a quick break because we're going to finish this glass and we're going to come back with some red. So hold tight. We'll be right back. We've started over. The glasses are full of red now. So let's talk red because I'm looking at this red and I don't know if it's location or if it's farming or what it is, but this is not the normal like Pinot 
magenta, red, you know, whatever. This is like a brick red that has this kind of really cool hue and really, and I don't know, interesting aroma. A good aroma, not bad aroma. Yeah, yes. well, I, I chose to bring our 2017 single clone Pinot Noir into the studio today. I We will, I'm sure, eventually taste all of the Pinot Noirs I brought, but... We have five different clones planted to uh, the main vineyard that we source our fruit from in Elkton. It is also the first vineyard that Nathan and I ever planted in Elkton. And similar to Holleran, we are also 100% vertically integrated enterprise. And that is 100% thanks to the vineyard management business that Nathan runs. So every single wine that goes into the glass um, is from a vine that Nathan planted into the ground. We say it's like from dirt to your glass, everything comes from there. So we've grown as our vineyards have started to mature and produce more. So for several years, we just had access to this little 12 and a half acre Pinot Noir vineyard. And we didn't have, you know, any other varietals to really work with. The, the ethos of crew work, aside from, you know, paying an homage to the people that farm with us every day and the collective effort that goes into creating the wine industry in general. I mean, the wine industry is not about winemakers or, or sales reps. The wine industry is actually about the people that grow the grapes and, and sometimes not even the people that own the vineyards, but the actual people that grow the grapes. And so, when people ask Nathan at parties and social events what he does or what we do, we say we do crew work. You know, he doesn't like to say I'm a winemaker, I'm a grape grower. That comes often with like a, a level, a label that is sometimes, you know, creates expectation around the type of person you're going to be or the type of wines you're going to make. So that's how we started crew work was just saying, oh, well, what do we do for a living? We do crew work. And that also brings in, you know, everybody that we work with. It's why we list all the members of a crew on the back of all of our labels. And so going back to having this one little Pinot Noir vineyard, we were like, well, shoot, you know, it would be nice to figure out a way that we can create some variety and some differentiation among the wines. For a long time, we had just a Pinot Noir. And then uh, we said, okay, well, we'll try it with some white Pinot Noir. And then 2016, that was the first year that we were blending together our blend for our barrels for our 2016 vintage. And we had this one barrel that just really wasn't playing well with the rest. It was it was really lovely on its own. The wine that was in it was was quite nice and floral and and full bodied and had a lot going on. And then you'd throw it into the blend and it just sort of muddied the blend. And it was, you know, there was something about it that just didn't vibe. And for us as a very, very small enterprise, you know, leaving a an entire barrel out of your blend is has like pretty strong financial implications for what you're gonna do. We don't really have the ability to like blend down barrels and leave some barrels over vintaging like we have to we do over vintage our pinot but but we don't really have as much flexibility as a larger operation so when discussing what we were going to do with this one barrel of single clone 828 pinot noir we decided to take the leap and bottle it on its own and I promptly forgot about it for about two and a half years. <laughs> Left it as shiners in, in bonded storage. And a buddy pulled a bottle out not too long ago and had a little piece of blue tape on it that said straight 2-8. And we opened it and were completely blown away. Really love the wine. So we made some labels and decided to sell it. We had 19 cases <laughs> for that first vintage. And the 2017, which we have in our glass now, is uh, we made a whopping 42. So doubled our production. It's very exciting. So that's the story of the single clone Pinot. Well, I was just going to ask you that because I'm looking at the bottle and it's, it's kind of a brown bag label that says straight 
spelled out, 2-8. And I was just going to ask you that, and you beat me to the punch, but it's a little spicy. It has a spice to it. it I mean, it's completely just a little bit of a difference, and that's just my palate. And again, yeah. oh, sorry. you know, a palate, you know, is very unique to each person. So whether I taste spicy or I taste mango, you know, that's just, that's me, not you. But I mean, this is just a very unique Pinot for what it is, and I couldn't pick a 828 from a 777 from a Vadensville from whatever else. I mean, that's just not my expertise on any level, but this is just a really cool, unique Pinot. Yeah, I think that, you know, we, we haven't made it again. So 2018, 2019, and 2020, we did not make this wine. We didn't find ourselves in a situation where we needed to necessarily, and we didn't find ourselves in a situation where that barrel, it's the same barrel every year which is crazy, but we didn't find ourselves in a situation where that barrel was, was really asking to be bottled on its own. And this wine, you know, I would still be, I would still be pouring and drinking and selling the 2016, but we had so little of it that we ended up going through it so quickly. And in my personal opinion, I think this 2017 is still quite young and has a little bit mellowing out to do because I am getting a little bit of that, a little bit of that, like, like a baking spice and like almost like a cinnamon, like it tastes like a young cab sometimes. And, and that is something that I think it will, it will grow into or maybe grow out of. That's the other piece about making living wines. You, they change and they evolve and they grow. And, and, you know, I like to tell people and our distributors, we, we don't make the same wine every year. They're different every single year, and that's the beauty of it. And I truly think that's what the beauty of the wine industry is, especially with um, smaller producers, smaller growers. You have more of this individual take on how your wine style is, but you also let the wines speak for themselves every year. So even though you have an 828 or whatever it is this year for 2017, 18 and 19 weren't the same, whether it's terroir, weather, you know, smoke, whatever, whatever it is that just altered that mm-hmm. vintage to not speak to you to bottle itself. That's what makes this unique and that's what it makes it fun. And that's really where the creativity lends to the wine industry because it's not the same every year. And that's what's the beauty of it all. I agree. And, you know, in like a, an interesting closing thought to our conversation, I think something that was touched on that you've touched on in your podcast multiple times is that the way you farm definitely makes a difference in how your wines present themselves. You know, they say that like great wine is made in the vineyard and that's true. That's actually not just a tagline. That's true. And Elkton is a very small AVA and things like, you know, we're working on getting glyphosate out of the AVA. Like we want to try to become, you know, completely a glyphosate free. We're, we're, you know, obviously all organic in our foliar sprays, but very judicious, judicious with the use of anything that came on a boat from China. And, you know, integrating animals into the vineyard. We have some friends in the industry that have been very generous with their knowledge and and trying to, you know, glean what we can from people who we really admire and who we think are doing things right. And not only does it make better wine, but it's better for the planet. And at the end of the day, if you're in intensive agriculture, I feel like we have a responsibility to to try to make decisions that, you know, are are selfless in some ways. If, if we're going to be making booze for a living, we might as well try to, you know, not hurt the planet while we're doing it. That's a great way to end, and that's a great way for me to ask you a similar question to what I asked Mark. So I know, give yourself some air, give yourself some room to think. You know, okay, number one, Desert Island again. Which wine and living 
or dead, who would you take with you to share that bottle? It would definitely be the white Pinot. I'm just like too into it. I, it's just too good. And living or dead, who would I take with me to finish that bottle? Does it have to be human? Not necessarily. <laughs> the, the question is open. You can take whoever you want. I would probably take my former pig, Celine. Are you going to share the wine with Celine or are you going to yeah. hog it all oh, for no, yourself? Oh, no, no. She'll, she'll drink Quota. some. She'll drink some. She'll drink some. She's, she's good company. Not to throw the pun in there, you know, un, unattended, you know, but... <laughs> I, I was going to say my husband, but then I realized that like we do enough stuff together. So I'm going to, I'm going to take Celine. I'm going to take Celine. Okay. That's not the answer I was, you know, expecting, but <laughs> I love it. And we need to probably find a picture of Celine to put on the, the she, website she, on yeah. some level to be able yeah. to connect the bacon with the wine. Yep. Okay. Yeah. She's, and she has a pet. Celine is still with us. She lives in Elkton. She's a seven-year-old Cooney Cooney. She's they're so cute. <laughs> short noses, short legs. They're big. amazing. And she's a feisty little bitch. I got to tell you, she bites. But, you know, who doesn't? Well, I don't know. I mean, after the wines and stuff, they got a little bite to themselves and a little bit of personality. So, <laughs> yeah. you yeah. know, Celine and the wines all go together in one big happy package. Casey, <laughs> I knew this was going to be fun, and I knew it was going to be colorful, and once I found out we were a bunch of lefties sitting in the same room, it was going to go sideways, and Celine just solidified that. So uh, thank you so much for joining us. Nathan, I'm really sorry you missed this because, you know, the party was good. And yeah. it's going to be even better once the food gets hit. Thank you so much for having us. And, uh, yeah, honey, you missed out. <laughs> thank you. And, Nathan, next time in Elkton, we'll take more pictures and more videos, and we'll just make sure that we get, you know, Crewworks wine all together in one big happy family. Thanks, Casey. Thank you so much. Thank you to all our listeners for tuning in today. And don't forget to follow Wine Crush Podcast on social media and your favorite podcasting platform. And make sure to review and subscribe to the show, as well as joining the newsletter to be notified on all Wine Crush happenings on winecrushpodcast.com. Cheers, y'all. And remember, life is short. Drink the wine. We want to give a special thanks to all of our partners of Wine Crush Podcast, sponsored by Country Financial, produced and managed by the Daydream Agency, audio engineered by Silent Outburst Productions, our culinary partner, Pura Vida Casina, and to all of our wonderful listeners in Oregon wine country and to those around the world. Hey, thank you so very much. We really appreciate all your support. Thank you.